This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, October 19th. Coming up, the Jackson County Health Department has settled a lawsuit with a megachurch that sued over the county's mask mandate. Plus, buying a home is a big enough challenge in Kansas City. But city code citations can make it even harder for low-income people to keep their homes. It doesn't actually help them access resources. It just drains them of the resources that they have when they pay fines. We'll bring you another story in our series on housing in Kansas City. But first, the Economic Development Corporation of Kansas City might not be a household name, but it has a lot of influence over commercial development in the city. And recently, it fired its chief executive for allegedly misusing funds. Steve Vakrat broke that story for us. He's the investigative editor of NPR's Midwest Newsroom, based here at KCUR, and he's here to talk about it. Hi, Steve. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is the Economic Development Corporation of Kansas City? So it's an agency. It's technically an arm of the government, if you will, the city government. So Kansas City, you know, City Hall and Kansas City contracts with it. And what they do is they oversee all these agencies uh, that they can award tax breaks for developers. They can, you know, give advice to the Kansas City Council over whether to give certain tax breaks to certain kinds of developments. It all sounds kind of like boring stuff, but when you drive around downtown Kansas City or even other parts, if you look at you know some of the newest developments in town, it's pretty likely that the EDC or one of the agencies that it administers had some role in helping shape that development and helping it come to fruition. So who was the EDC's chief executive and why did they fire her? So the chief executive until September 30th was Teresa McCord, and she had been with the agency uh, since 2013. She was made the interim CEO in late 2019. The agency hasn't had a permanent CEO in more than two years. And you know, Teresa McCord uh, was accused of uh, misusing agency funds in a couple of ways. One allegation is that there were, that she made payments to her husband or that her husband received payments from the EDC through a PayPal account. And then another allegation was that she got an advance basically to herself. There was an EDC check with her name on it uh, from the EDC for $15,000. And that was described in a memo as being an advance while she was waiting for her 401k loan uh, check to arrive. And so, and that was more money than she was authorized to spend under the EDC's policies. And so when the board discovered those things, as well as a change in the policy manual that spoke to whether you can uh, pay family members of uh, EDC employees, the board voted to fire her. You also found some records of how Teresa McCord treated her staff. What did those records say? So that came from a uh, anonymous whistleblower letter uh, that I ended up getting a copy of and later authenticated that in addition to some of the things that I mentioned had accused her of uh, promoting kind of a, a climate of fear and a toxic working environment within the EDC. I was told that the EDC investigated those claims and they didn't fully substantiate them and that the real issue for uh, that led to her uh, termination was these uh, kind of financial and policy uh, transactions that uh, that we discussed. And how did the EDC and Teresa McCord respond to this story? So the EDC's chair basically told me that, you know, these these were the action. These were why this is why we fired her, essentially, that, you know, there were these two 
financial transactions on this policy change. And her quote to me was basically that the board found these to be completely unacceptable. Um, and that, you know, and, and Teresa sent me a letter in response to a letter I'd left at her house. I wanted to get her comment and her response to all these things because these are pretty uh, serious issues. And she sent me a letter or delivered me a letter uh, that basically said that she's the target of a smear campaign within the EDC, that there's a disgruntled employee and that she, that this employee who's not named in the letter had made an attempt uh, to extort the EDC in a way that's not uh, identified in the letter and that she blew the whistle and, you know, had whistleblower privileges when she told the board chair about it. And, Beyond that, she denies that she bullied or harassed any employees. Um, she says that she is uh, she has a tough uh, and assertive demeanor, but that it didn't rise to uh, what the anonymous letter appeared to describe. How did you find this story? So I just kind of heard that there were some issues going on with the EDC um, that I had just tried to look into. And the more I the more I kind of pushed, the more I started kind of getting a clear picture. And then eventually, eventually I got the records that spoke to some of the issues that were going on. And, you know, things kind of fell into place from there. How did you get those records? Uh, through uh, several several requests. So the EDC, because of their relationship with City Hall and because they get so much funding from public sources, they qualify as a public body under the Sunshine Law. And so most of their records then become uh, open records. And so that's, that's how I was able to kind of zero down some of the particulars of this issue. Why does all of this matter? I think all of this matters in terms, you know, for the public, this is an agency while, you know, we kind of said at the top, you know, this isn't, you know, the type of agency that everyone sits around the dinner table talking about. But they probably do talk about from time to time some of the projects that this agency helps shape. And it's an agency that hasn't had a permanent director. Um, you know, it's had some turnover, it's had some cuts to its budget. Um, and I think this, you know, kind of what happened with its top leadership is an illustration of the condition in which we find this agency today. Steve Vokrat is the investigative editor of NPR's Midwest Newsroom. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And now for some headlines. A Lee's Summit megachurch has settled its lawsuit against Jackson County over its COVID-19 restrictions. KCUR's Dan Margulies reports. The county has agreed to pay the legal fees of Abundant Life Baptist Church, totaling $146,750. Jonathan Whitehead, the lawyer who represented the church, said courts have made it clear that houses of worship need to be treated the same as secular establishments. The problem with Jackson County was it was harder to worship than it was to go to Walmart, and it was harder to get baptized than it was to go to Bass Pro. Abundant Life sued the county in May 2020. At the time, the county limited church gatherings to 10 people, but did not impose the same restrictions on restaurants, bars, or other retail establishments. Before the COVID pandemic, the church drew up to 4,500 worshipers to its Sunday morning services. COVID vaccinations are slowing down across Missouri, but health experts say they're concerned about the poor progress of one group in particular, teens. KCUR's Alex Smith reports. Just 36% of eligible Missourians under the age of 18 have completed COVID shots. That's lower than any other age group in the state, according to the latest Vaccine Equity Report. 
New vaccination rates among 14 to 17-year-olds have fallen for nine weeks straight. The report shows areas north of Kansas City have especially high rates of unvaccinated teens. Since the start of the month, new COVID-19 cases have increased slightly among Missourians under 18. Overall, an average of around 1,100 new COVID-19 cases are diagnosed each day in the state. We'll be back after this message from our supporters. At UMB Private Wealth Management, a part of UMB Bank, your story is our focus. UMB works closely with you to tailor a plan that meets your goals through every stage of life and changing economic climates. UMB's customized financial planning services and resources help you accumulate, preserve, and protect wealth, giving you peace of mind about your future. UMB, everything we do starts with you, from our high-touch service to our robust suite of wealth management products. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomina Giadine. For many Kansas City homeowners, simply buying a house feels like a huge step. But for lower income homeowners, housing stability isn't a guarantee. They're disproportionately impacted by city code violations, which not only create tension between neighbors, they also make owning a home even less affordable. KCUR's Jody Fortino brings us this story. Kenneth Jenkins bought his first home in the summer of 2018. For him, it's a symbol of the changes he's made in his life. He says he had a colorful past. But as he sits on the front porch of his home at 40th Street and Prospect Avenue in Kansas City's Oak Park neighborhood, he says he's had second thoughts since city code violations piled on once he became a homeowner. That right there is a whole new ball game because I'll tell you what, sometimes I wish I wasn't buying a house. I'm being dead serious. I mean, all the, all the stuff that they want to sit there and do, man. All, it's like you, you want to nitpick me for what? Jenkins has been cited for a list of different city code violations, like the wood that he uses to warm his house in the winter, untagged cars that he's repairing, and even a rake and barrel he left in his front yard. Jenkins said keeping up with the maintenance the city expects is demanding, both physically and financially. He says he just doesn't have enough money or time to keep up. It's like, okay, here, you work, you work all day, you come home, and then you got to pound it out at the house, too, because if you don't, you're going to get a fine that's exuberant or, or, or crazy. There are a few organizations in Kansas City that work to help people in Jenkins' position, like Jerusalem Farm. The organization is a Catholic community of volunteers that repair homes for low-income families in the city's historic Northeast. Program Director Jordan Sheely says Jenkins is far from alone in his housing woes. He says low-income homeowners are often the target for code violations, since many lack the resources to maintain their home up to city standards in the first place. And once they receive a citation, the clock starts to clean up or repair their property or face housing court. Sheely says that adds stress to homeowners who often end up feeling like they're in a hopeless situation. It doesn't actually help them access resources. It just drains them of the resources that they have when they pay fines. They have to take time off of work to go to court, um, which oftentimes are working hourly jobs. And homeowners often end up in this situation at the hands of their own neighbors. City code enforcement is a complaint-driven process where people report properties to the city's 311 line. Sheely says residents that call 311 in the hopes of beautifying their community may not even realize the process they're putting their neighbors through. For his part, Jenkins says knowing his neighbors are making complaints about him just makes him feel bad. 
it really isn't. All it does is it makes a person feel like you stabbed me in the back and I stabbed you in the back, or you know what I'm saying, or you undercut me, you know, you know. There's no way to know who is reporting violations since people can make 311 reports anonymously. Sheely says that leads to a lack of accountability for those who use 311 irresponsibly or to retaliate against neighbors for something else. John Bacala is the community liaison for Kansas City's Neighborhoods and Housing Services Department. He says that regardless of the intent of the complaint, city code enforcers are required to respond to 311 reports. He says enforcement tries to work with homeowners on their violations before turning to housing court as a last resort. Our ultimate goal is to keep neighborhoods beautified and to get problems addressed before they get out of hand. Sheely with Jerusalem Farm says he thinks a community-based system is a better choice. The organization was a part of a pilot program last year that handled all of the 311 calls for the Indian Mound neighborhood in Kansas City's historic Northeast. By working directly with residents, he said they were able to handle 80 percent of complaints without resorting to fines. The city has a similar initiative with Northland neighborhoods, but Sheely says he'd like to see these programs happen across the city. He says different neighborhoods may have different needs. We're dealing with different cultures, we're dealing with different people, Um, and so I think when you have community-based organizations, they know what's best for their community. There are a lot of barriers to owning a home in Kansas City, from getting a loan to finding a house at a reasonable price. For first-time homeowner Jenkins, buying a house turned out to be just the first step towards housing stability. But if he can't make it out from under the pile of code violations, that could change. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Jody Fortino. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. You can find more stories about Kansas City housing at kcur.org, where you can also find our live stream. If you like Kansas City Today, help us out by sharing the show with your friends or leaving us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.